Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. Kevin, we have a finals matchup in place featuring a team you've been a fan of for years in the Miami Heat. Now, now we're recording this on, on Wednesday, September 30th, before Game 1's tip-off, so we don't know what's going to happen yet. You, as a listener, you're absolutely going to know what's happening. Hopefully, this will be a nice little intro for you here before um game two but kevin you have to be excited as a heat fan for years i mean what what are some of the things that you're hoping to see from the miami heat coming into game one to kind of set the tone for the series well that's the thing we need to set the tone we cannot come out slow in any manner we have to come out control the fourth quarter prove that we belong to be there there's a ton of people who don't think we do yeah i i kind of agree with that um setting the tone obviously is going to come from jimmy and bam first and foremost because those are the defensive anchors for the team and i certainly think they need to come out with the attitude not necessarily that that we have to completely shut down lebron and ad because you're not going to shut those two down but you have to make it competitive right and and i actually think there are a lot of people talking about Bam Adebayo needs to be the best player in the series, and, and he needs to be that team's MVP for them to win the finals. I I actually I think it needs to be Jimmy, and I don't know where you sit on that fence, but I think Jimmy really needs to come out, show that intensity guarding LeBron James, and, and he needs to be a big-time shot maker for them, especially late in games. You saw it through the playoffs. He was hitting some of those big threes to either give Miami leads or cushion leads enough late in games for them to seal the deal. Uh, I I really think he needs to continue to be that big shot maker. What you get from Bam, I mean, Bam's been pretty consistent. I think he's going to be consistent for the most part. I think Jimmy needs to come out. He's He needs to average, I, I, I'd say, 24, 25-plus a game for, for them to, to definitely get an edge in this series and maybe even win the finals. So what do you think about that, that Jimmy versus Bam dynamic, and who do you think is more important in the series? Can I be honest here? I don't Absolutely. think I don't think that we have to have the best player in the series. I think the best player in the series is gonna be LeBron or AD. I think it's more important that we have three out of the next five. I think it's important that we have Jimmy Butler, Bam, maybe Tyler Hero, maybe Goran Dragic, whoever wants to step up. We need to have three out of the top five best players. Because at the end of the day, LeBron is the best player on the planet, right? He shows up in the playoffs. And I mean look at all the stats he's had throughout his career. Nobody matches him in playoffs with his consistency through every single stat. We just need to tone him down a little bit and just make sure we're playing heat basketball where it's not a matter of one player stepping up every single game. It's a matter of the team stepping up every single time. I I agree with that. I, I definitely agree with that, that any any finals win, it needs to be a team effort, right? You're going to need contri- contributions from Tyler. You're going to need contributions from Duncan Robinson. Obviously, Bam, as we talked about, Jimmy. Iggy. Uh, Iggy, Goran Dragic needs to continue to be huge. Jay Crowder needs to do a little bit better than I think at one point during the Boston series, he was like three for his last 22 threes. I mean, he, he's got to shoot better than that when, when he's getting those open looks. Um, yeah, I agree. It needs to be a team effort. But in terms of there, there does need to be somebody who's willing to take the mantle and, and ultimately take and make those, those big shots, especially at the end of the games. Like, for example, the Detroit Pistons, that, that's a, a, a team that everyone wants to compare this team to, um, or even somebody like Dallas in 2011. On the Pistons team, you had Chauncey Billups. You had Big Shot Billups willing to definitely step up 
and, and be that lead shot maker late in games. Obviously, in 2011, Dirk went off, and I, I think he he's probably had the the hottest shooting finals out of any player that I've certainly seen in in recent memory. Kind of being that one man wrecking crew, not missing a free throw. Like he he was absolutely incredible against Miami in 2011. But I I don't think that Jimmy needs to necessarily be as dominant as Dirk but I think he needs to come out and assert himself as that number one guy. I mean, he went to Miami to chase a championship. That was the whole reason why he went there. He wanted to win with guys who he knew would believe in him, guys he knew he would have around him. They'd be ready to go to war. That's that's absolutely Tyler, which, by the way, I, I don't know your thoughts about what, what, what Tyler did against the Boston Celtics, especially in that game five. That man... He, he, he deserved to be picked higher in the draft. I, I had him ranked a little higher than ultimately he went um, 13 to Miami. I think he was absolutely just another undervalued guard coming out of Kentucky. Didn't really get to show a lot in that John Calipari offense. But, I, I mean, we, we've talked about it multiple times on this podcast. The college game, it doesn't always let you show all of your strengths off as much as, you've, as, much as you like um, coming into the NBA. So, having Tyler Hero as an absolute frame flamethrower scoring weapon and the ability to make plays for others at the point guard spot. If you can have him as your point in, in those late game situations with Duncan Robinson, with somebody like Jay Crowder or Iggy, and then you have Jimmy and Bam, I mean, that's one heck of a closing lineup for, for LeBron and the Lakers to deal with. And I know certainly they'll be ready. They'll have a closing lineup set of their own. Um, but what, what, what do you think about Tyler Hero's ability to kind of change things up for Miami's offense and, and maybe give them that edge in, in more of a team effort? Listen, any time that Paul Pierce can be wrong, I'm all for it. And Tyler Hero really shut up Paul Pierce's series. I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I, I love Hero, but I'm afraid that even though he is a big shot maker, he's proven it throughout the playoffs. The finals is a brand new thing. And Boston has good defense, but LeBron in the final of intensity is something that scares me, not only with just, like, how he's going to guard. He's probably going to be guarding Jimmy most of the time, but how he's going to make his teammates guard Tyler, how he's going to make his teammates guard Bam. I just worry. What, what I will say about the Lakers and what could possibly make them as close to unguardable as you can be here in the finals against Miami is... Anthony Davis really has to step up here and show his entire skills package and show just what he's capable of doing offensively. Because if you think about it, even when you play another big next to him, well, what does Miami like to do, right? Miami would like to would absolutely love to put Bam on AD, and then they kind of have some of those other secondary shot blockers be, be mm -hmm. able to rotate. Um, and not have to necessarily be out on the perimeter just standing by and watch somebody all the time. You have Anthony Davis stretching the defense potentially like he can. He doesn't have to post up. He doesn't have to be a lob threat. He can put guys in isolation and make somebody else come out and guard him on the perimeter and get some of those other secondary shot blockers away from the rim to open things up, especially for LeBron and some of those other guards. Like we see Caruso absolutely love to, to make quick cuts along the baseline and take advantage of some of the other Lakers passing ability, whether it's LeBron, whether it's Rondo running the point. Um, AD really needs to hit jump shots in this series and make Miami respect that jump shot. And I think that is something that he's going to do. And it's really going to create some matchup problems for Miami. They're going to have to figure out who they want to live with guarding him one-on-one. -on -one. 
and, and they're going to have to, they're really going to have to live with a lot of decisions they make on the defensive end from that aspect. Yeah. The, the good thing about AD for the series is uh, in the Miami Boston series, Boston refused to go to the free throw line. Not, not so much shooting free throws, but shooting the jump shot from there. I forget who I was reading about who was saying it, but uh, the way Miami plays their defense, the free throw line is like always open. And Brad Stevens refused to adjust his offense to deal with the zone that Miami was playing. But that's AD's specialty. He loves taking pull-up jumpers from there. He loves doing it. So it's going to be an issue with can Spolstra coach them to deal with that, even though they didn't have to deal with that for the entirety of the last two weeks. Well, I, I will say, if, if if there's one player who can break down a zone, it, it's certainly LeBron. I mean, he he's going to have his way with that zone defense at times, and Spolster is going to have to switch it up, and they are really going to have to nail down by games like two and three who they're going to go to in terms of guarding each hmm. L.A. star one-on-one. Like the, They're not going to be able to run the zone the entire series for the amount of time and stretches that they did against somebody like Boston. They're not going to be able to do that against LeBron in L.A. So we're, we're going to see how quickly Spolstra can make adjustments and how great of adjustments he can make, but I, I don't put that past him at all because we're, we're talking about somebody before he became the head coach. He was a guy who literally, and I mean literally, lived in the film room he was a video coordinator and he loved his job and he is going to sit down and study every single second of film especially from game one and he's going to come out and i think he's he's really going to make it a competitive series for lebron and the lakers i can pick the lakers in five or six games but even if they would end up winning in five games I, i still think it's good it would be a competitive five games right like miami's not going to be steamrolled um, there, there was a point, there really was a point where I, I thought I was going to end up picking the heat to, to win it all when, when they were absolutely destroying Boston and Boston showed some fight. They came back, did a few things against that Miami zone to, to put themselves in position to win games. But at the end of the day, Miami had the closer step up when they needed them to, they had hero, they had bam, they mm-hmm. had Jimmy. And I, I think, as you mentioned, that whole team dynamic, having multiple guys that they can trust and lean on that it is going to hurt L.A., and, and if Jimmy can be that super guy that they can lean on at the end of the games, whether it's making a big shot or even making a, a timely play for somebody else, they, they are going to pose problems for LeBron, and LeBron is he, – he, he wants it. He really does. He came into this bubble with one mindset. That was championship or bust, and he's going to have to prove it like he did in that Denver – at the end of that Denver series when he was making jumper after jumper after jumper mm-hmm. to close out that game to, to get them into the finals. I mean, going back to the coaching a little bit, the one thing I can say with full confidence as a Heat fan is I know Spolster is going to outcoach Vogel. I'm not worried about that one little bit. And that's no disrespectful Frank Vogel. I think he's a fine coach. He's done a really good job this year. But, I mean, maybe if Miami bias, because I've been a fan since I was a youngin, but, like, Spolster is either the best coach in the NBA right now or just very little behind somebody like Popovich. He's that good. No, he's Spolster's absolutely top five coaches in the NBA right now that that's not even a question um I I would really have to sit down and and go through the those top coaches in the league to see if I can determine maybe maybe he is number one but he's absolutely up there there's no question about it and and I agree with that point I I think a lot of the coaching Spolster absolutely does have an edge because of his background um in, in major film study I think he he's he's gonna film room the the living hell out of this series um, and, and he's going to do what he has to do from that perspective. It's going to be on the players 
he's going to put them in position to take and make big shots and, and make the right decisions on offense. It's, it's going to be up to the Heat players to ultimately execute that game plan um, and, and execute those adjustments that Spolster is going to put in place. Again, I, I think the Lakers are going to come out and, and they're going to win game one. And they're, they're going to come out strong with that mindset of we came here to win this championship. It's championship or bust. We're going to run you guys into the ground. And I think Spolstra from there, he, he's going to have to figure out what he needs to do to come out and win game two. I think Miami absolutely can come out and win game two. I'm, I would pick them to win game two because I, I am pretty, I'm picking Lakers in six. I'm picking Lakers okay. in six. That means Miami's got to win two games at least. So I think yep. they're going to win game two. They're going to even it up. And you're right. It's going to be on Frank Vogel to maybe if he can't outcoach Spolstra, he's going to have to make some key and timely adjustments himself going into games three and four. Um, if that plays out that it's a one and one split after the two. So yeah, he, he's going to have to be big time as a coach. But I think having guys like LeBron and Rondo on the floor, who they, they kind of are coaches in their own right, I think that's a major advantage for Vogel, and that's that's something I don't know if Miami has that. I, I trust Dragic to to run a team, especially in the finals in high pressure situations. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much I trust Hero to be that same kind of point guard. Frankly, I don't know how much I trust Jimmy to be that same kind of point guard. I mean, he's never um, been there, right? He's he's never been there, and you know he's going to have the ball in his hands to to make decisions mm-hmm. late in games. So that's uh, again coming back to that point of he needs to be that that guy, that creator late in games, he's really going to have to step up because you, you know LeBron has been there before. You know LeBron's coming in with one goal, one purpose, and he's going to do whatever he can to win games. All right, let, let's pose this question. We've talked a lot about Miami, right? For the Lakers, what is one way they win the series and one way they lose the series in your mind? So one way they win the series is if, Anthony Davis does kind of what I want him to, and he is that go-to isolation scorer late in games that LeBron can lean on to the point where LeBron can be more of a playmaker and sit back as a quarterback and see things that, that Miami's doing defensively, and he can kind of pick everyone apart and, and put everybody in position. But if he's the guy that has to have his head down and attack all the time, he doesn't get to do that, right? So having another scorer to step up who can hit shots from the perimeter like Anthony Davis, that's really going to open things up for him to operate and kind of do what he wants to do as far as picking things apart late in the game. Um, and on that, on that notion, how they lose the series is they just, they, they're not able to hit enough threes right now. I think they will. I think LeBron's proven that he, he is a go-to shot maker from deep in a high pressure situation like the finals. He's become that. I think Anthony Davis is going to hit enough outside shots. And then at that point, you're asking Caruso to hit some timely shots. You're asking KCP to step up and hit some timely shots. The The one guy that I don't trust to be that shooter late in games who I think is going to end up being on the floor in a lot of closeout lineups is Kuzma. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a Kuzma fan. I, mm. I like him as a rotational player. But... How much dog does he have in him to take and make that that big shot? And not just the big shot, but the right shot. He He's a guy who can absolutely be a jack, and he will force up a lot of tough looks. And I, I have a feeling LeBron, LeBron's going to give him some some side <laughs> eyes at, at, at points in this series. You you know it's coming. You know Kuzma's going to be benched. Uh, no, at, at LeBron least would never times. do that. No, no, of course not. He would never <laughs> throw shade at any of his teammates. But you know it's coming, and the question's going to be, how does Kuzma respond 
when Vogel pulls him in some of those situations after mm. he he takes some of those shots because I know they're coming. It's it's going to be how he responds. But so they 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 win the series by executing LeBron's offensive game plan because he's going to be calling a lot of the plays. Vogel's going to be doing a lot of the defensive scheming and making adjustments there. But LeBron and Ronda are going to be calling a lot of the plays on offense. It's going to be how well do they execute from that perspective, and can they hit enough three-point shots to outrun Miami because I know LeBron's Lakers, Anthony Davis's Lakers, they are one hell of a defensive unit, and they are especially well, well-timed, well and, and, and they're rugged guarding people one-on-one, so they're going to make it tough for Miami to get up as many three-point shots as they, as they might have had in other series in the playoffs here. But Miami's definitely going to take the threes. If they're making threes at a high rate, at some point, three is more than two, and and the Lakers are going to have to make enough to at least somewhat mitigate that that difference. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think it'll be a really interesting series. I don't think the Lakers have played somebody like Miami in the playoffs. Like they play some tough teams. Don't get me wrong. Like Denver's a good team. Portland's also good. But like I don't, I don't. Miami's built different. And they're built like a team that can really take down a giant because they play just such good team basketball. That's just what he culture is. They just care. They're going to outwork you no matter what. You never have to worry about that as a Miami fan. Well, yeah, and that's the thing we've talked about on on previous episodes of the podcast. I, I remember vividly that I talked about how Miami has three guards, right? Butler, Hero, Dragic, that they trust to make decisions, especially late in games. Uh, they have Bam operating out of the center of the floor. And he is an excellent playmaker in his own right, but he can also stretch the defense out, hit some of those mid-range jumpers. So you have to respect mm-hmm. him from there. Um, but everyone else around those guys in those roles, sure, those three guys can make plays when when things break down, but they don't have anybody else on that team trying to do too much, right? Like Crowder, yeah. you know what he's going to do. Iguodala, you know what he's going to do. Um, Kelly Olynyk, when he comes in the game, you know what he's going to do. Duncan Robinson, obviously he's there as a specialist. Everybody has a defined role, and they play to their strengths. They don't play to their weaknesses. They really don't beat themselves. So you're right. The The Lakers really haven't played uh, a team quite like that. I guess Den- Denver, um, they, they don't really beat themselves either, but I don't think Denver had as many playmakers ultimately uh, to, to make some of those decisions and, and step up when things broke down as Miami does. Miami has more of those guys. They have three defined guys. So, yeah, I, I think your point about the Lakers haven't played a team like Miami, I think that's an absolutely fair point to make. Yeah. Are you uh, So you're picking Lakers and six, obviously. I'm are picking Lakers picking, and six. Are you picking LeBron as the MVP or are you going AD? I, I think at the end of the day, I think LeBron kind of will have to be the the – finals mvp if they're really going to win the series because he's he's going to be the one putting up those close to triple double numbers but it's going to be up to anthony davis to keep up um that that points per game average in the playoffs here he's going to have to really pour in 28 plus and again be efficient on those jumpers for 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 them to come out and win the finals but i i'm betting that they will what about you here the issue if i go with my heart i think the heat are going to win but just like if you look at it analytically if you look at it just based on like how you think both teams are going to match up and how people are going to play. It's tough to pick against the Lakers. The Lakers are just on fire. I mean, the Heat are on fire too, don't get me wrong. But the Lakers came to the, like you said, they came to the bubble with one purpose. They're going to win the bubble. They're going to win the championship. I think they have a chip on their shoulder too because of all the trash talk that the Clippers gave them all year round. 
Can you imagine all the headlines after the finals if LeBron wins? All the sh- literal shade he's going to throw at the Clippers? Not even just Kawhi, not even just Paul George, just the team as a whole, about how the Clippers were built through toughness, not being chosen. It's not going to go well for the Clippers if the Lakers win, but I digress. I think the Lakers are going to win in seven, but I'm still pulling for the Heat. Well, what what I will give you is I think the Heat are a deeper team. I think they're going to end up being a better prepared and better coach team. But when you hear LeBron talk about, I don't care about anything else. I'm here. I'm going to win the title. I'm going to leave the bubble. That's a man on a mission. Mm-hmm. He's the best player in the world, and I'm not going to bet against him at this point. I think this is going to be a much bigger challenge than than some people think. PLA, like, I, I know we're technically in the media, but referring to yeah. other media members like Skip Bayless, all, all those guys thinking this is going to be a cakewalk for LeBron. No, it's not. The, the Heat are a real I, team. I love Miami. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, have, a, I have our clickbait of the week. Are you ready for this, Nate? We haven't had one of those in a while, yeah. so you know what? I'm game. All right, LeBron James. We all know the numbers. We all know the stats. This is his 10th final ever, right? Only three yeah. NBA teams have been to more finals than him. If he wins this final, he goes 4-6, and six, right? That's not a great record. But making 10 finals is impressive, right? You'd say? It's absolutely impressive. Why is he not better if he makes 10 finals and goes 4-6 and six in MJ? Oh, don't do this, Kevin. Don't do this, Kevin. Don't do this, yeah. man. M- M- MJ's six for six. MJ's six for six. It's a wrap. Here's the issue. That's good and dandy, but in my eyes, it doesn't matter how many finals you win. It matters your playoff records. Like, yeah, it's great. He's, he hasn't lost to finals, but it's far more impressive that he's made this many finals. I I, I see where you're coming from. I, I, I'm not going to say there's no chance LeBron doesn't pass MJ as the greatest player of all time. But I think even even if he wins this title, I think he probably still needs at least one more for, for yeah. me to really give credence um, to putting him truly number one over Jordan. I mean, you, you saw it in, in the Last Dance documentary. What, what Jordan had to go through during his career all of the personal turmoil he dealt with, all the personal decision-making that he had to own up to and live with and then ultimately come out come out on top of, um, along with everything going on with his teammates, with the front office. I, I know LeBron had some dysfunction as far as his relationship with Dan Gilbert in Cleveland. That's been reported on enough, but I don't think LeBron has had the same level of personal struggles that he's had to overcome as Jordan did in his career. And I think the fact that Jordan never backed down from anyone and still imposed his will, no matter who he faced, no matter what time he was facing them, um, I I still think that's incredibly impressive. Even though he lost and didn't get to as many finals as LeBron, when he got to the finals, he got the job done, right? He was six for six. So that's why I still have him number one. But I'm not one of those people that's going to downplay the LeBron-MJ conversation. I think it's closer than people think. And I think as long as LeBron gets the job done this year, he wins another ring within the next two years that he's probably going to be with the Lakers for sure, with Anthony Davis. It it, it really does become an interesting conversation. I think the one big detriment to LeBron's record is that 2011 against Dallas. That's a series he should have never lost. I think if he wins that, and let's say he's 4-5 and right now, 
and he's gone for five and five this year. I don't think there's any shot that anybody would even discredit the argument. Some people would still say MJ's better, just like some people say Wilt's better. At the end no, of the I, day, I agree. Losing, losing that 2011 series, and as a Heat fan, it hurts losing that series, but losing that to Dallas, it's just such a big knock in his resume. No, I agree. I agree. That, that is a knock, um, and, and I don't necessarily discredit him going to Miami, joining up with Wade and Bosch anymore. I know I certainly did in the past if we're really going to be hot takey on this podcast, but I don't discredit that anymore because we've seen it happen um, with, with some of these other teams. Now, that's just the era we're in. Guys are friendlier with each other. They want to compete um, with their friends. They want to win championships with their friends. So um, if they're able to do it, if they're able to stay focused, get the work done, come out, I mean, I, I don't see a problem with it anymore. Um, so I'm not going to discredit him from that front. I agree. If he would have won that title in 2011, yeah, if, if he won this year, it probably would be a lot closer of a conversation. But even even if he can pull it off this year, winning championships with three different teams, being a finals MVP on three different teams, he's yeah. in rare, he's rarefied company. That That's not something that you can even think of talking about. Yeah, I mean, I don't think so. there's another NBA player who's done that, right? Three NBA Finals MVPs with three different teams. Le- Le- next... LeBron, LeBron would be the first. Yeah. So that's that's about as rarefied company as, as you're gonna get in. He, he's elite. He's by himself, right? So, um, I I I think this is a legacy play for LeBron. I I think that's part of why he's coming out focused because he knows he can do something special, something that hasn't been done. And I think he he wants to be in L.A. He wants to win with L.A. And and that's why, again, that that brings focus that you can't expect any other Heat player to be able to match that level of focus because they're not in the same position as LeBron. So, Mm -hmm. All right, well, with that, how about we move on to your uh, big board then? Absolutely. So getting into the rest of today's show, I'm wrapping up the first round of the 2020 Draft Deeper Big Board. We got 26 through 30 left, so... We're going to make quick work of that and, and and go through some final thoughts before I reevaluate and adjust as new information comes out from the virtual combine. Um, in case anyone listening to this podcast hasn't heard the news, teams will be conducting virtual combines for measurements, recorded workouts, and better interviews to get an idea of where prospects are at now versus when the college season abruptly ended. And quite frankly, new information is always valuable and will lead to some slight movements on everyone's boards. I like to have... I like to have uh, my philosophy in place that, that my board should pretty much be set by now. Hell, in a normal year, we'd be gearing up for preseason NBA games. But especially in the situation we're in now as evaluators, these prospects have had an incredible amount of time to prepare for the next NBA season before they're even drafted. They've all had an unprecedented offseason. So it'll be important to take note of official numbers and measurements as they come out. And the first prospect we're going to talk about on the pod today may benefit greatly from the combine process. So starting at 26 is Tyrell Terry, guard out of Stanford, originally measuring around 6'1", coming into college, but he's apparently grown to 6'3", and has also reportedly packed on about 20 extra pounds of lean muscle mass, according to his management group beyond. Again, these aren't official numbers, but there's no reason to believe they aren't accurate at this point, given the agency's reputation as well as Terry's. And to me... His physical stature was the reason why I've kind of had him ranked here. But to be honest, as this stands, I definitely have him too low. I mentioned the physical measurements originally holding him back because I think his size was a hindrance 
when he got into the paint and actually looked for contact and tried to finish through the defense. He struggled with that at times, although when going back and looking over the film, I actually love his competitive drive to hunt for those opportunities. When he got to the line at Stanford, he was nearly automatic, just barely missing that 90% mark. And while excellent shooting guards should have a reliable stroke at the charity stripe, it's still something to be commended because it's another easy way young guys can rack up points in more limited roles during a rookie or a sophomore season. Terry doesn't shy away from contact, so him willing to make an effort to get to the line to help his team, that's certainly worthy of praise. And I mentioned his shooting another aspect, he's lights out from deep. He shot 41% from three in college, and that shot's going to translate in the NBA because he made looks off every play type you can think of for a guard. He's talked about in interviews studying how guys like Steph Curry and J.J. Redick set their feet and reestablish off actions to get open catch and look shots, and it shows. Terry's as much of a knockdown shooter off the catch as he is coming off a ball screen in a pick and roll and acting as a scorer. His confidence, his trust in his range, let him act as a weapon that's becoming more common in today's NBA because guards like him, Trey Young, Dame Lillard, they're game changers. He generally avoids taking bad shots, and he isn't afraid to pass the ball when he gets in trouble. Does he still have some work to do in terms of decision-making out of pressure? Yes. And I don't think at this point he's the best playmaker when things ultimately break down. He's not the same level of improviser at the point guard position that we might be used to seeing at the next level. I think he's a smart kid who has a good understanding of the game. So I think more of that craft, vision, that kind of start-stop awareness, that will come as he gets more reps as a lead ball handler. When he learns and gets those opportunities, though, he'll be able to stay on the floor because of what he brings offensively in those other areas I just mentioned. When he's in a pick-and-roll action or a called play, he is able to make all the reads and hit guys with a pass from, from any angle. I've seen him make a variety of impressive passes within the play at Stanford. So in terms of executing called actions, I see no issues with him doing the same in the NBA. Now, one weakness regarding improvisation, he, all, he did also struggle off shooting off pull-off jumpers inside the arc. And again, wasn't the greatest finisher around the basket because of his body type. But adding that extra strength and growing into his frame to the point where he may be able to add some more bulk, that's going to help him overcome contact finishes around the basket. And the other thing I really like about Terry is that he takes long strides as a guard. So there are enough times he avoids defenders altogether to get to, to the rim for a more open layup. If he can continue to make strides as a playmaker while expanding his mid-range game, there's little to not like at this point. In terms of guys I have ranked outside the lottery, he may have the greatest star upside, which would certainly call for me to move him up. If, he's, if this is only his floor and he only hits his floor, then having a secondary creator in the backcourt and, and shooter as a role player is nothing to sneeze at. Terry's a solid first-round prospect, and I don't fault scouts who even have him in the lottery. His overall package could be that tantalizing of why I don't see myself moving him into the lottery on my board. I may look back with regret one of these days that I didn't. So I'm becoming higher on him each passing day, and I can't wait to see what other combine film comes out of this. So up next is Teo Maladon, a 27, 6'5 guard, who has spent his early years developing in the French Pro Leagues, playing a decent-sized role on Tony Parker's club as the lead ball handler. What Maladon has going for him, apart from experience, is that he has the requisite size to excel as a lead ball handler in the NBA. Tall enough to see over defenses at the point guard spot, it's certainly helped him develop 
and lead different attacks overseas. Maladon's reputation paints him as a playmaker and more of a floor general than scoring guard, an archetype that is more common stateside nowadays from guards like Terry, as we just discussed. Maladon's game's built around making other guys better while trying to limit mistakes and play it safe. That's certainly a useful player to have on your roster, don't get me wrong, but having someone who can offer more scoring cre- creativity than Maladon is more appealing to NBA teams at this point in the draft, considering Maladon is coming in bare minimum as a backup. And if you're going to take a backup point guard with a first-round pick, he better have some scoring punch. I don't see it with Maladon. He's certainly craftier than some of the other guards that are in this range. And I suppose I have him here because I don't necessarily see him busting. I, I, I think he's a safe pick as a backup and spot starter in the right offense. And, and I trust him to lead a team and make things happen more than some other point guards in this draft class, as well as free agents that teams could bring in for a second unit but he doesn't offer the same upside. He lacks the explosiveness to really navigate around or through a defense like you see from more top-shelf prospects at the guard spot nowadays, especially in today's class. He has the size. He's not going to get pushed around or bullied, but I don't see him being able to probe defenses and get the most out of what he can do in the NBA like he did overseas. His outside shot has improved over time, and he could become a spot-up threat to give him a nice off-ball dimension offensively, but he's not an off-dribble creator from range shaky at best pulling up in the mid-range and if he isn't getting to the basket much then how much of an offensive threat is he and although he's labeled more as a playmaker i wouldn't call anything he does generational he doesn't have special vision or passing ability like a lamella ball or a killian hayes at the top of this draft he kind of is who he is and at this point i'm okay with taking a backup who i know will come in and be mature enough for the role i'd hand him Without more upside, I see the argument for dropping him out of the first round altogether, and I could see that becoming a reality, at least on my board. I could see myself coming to that conclusion on a reevaluation. But given his positional size, potential defensive impact in passing lanes due to his length and IQ, and his maturity to handle a playmaking role for a second unit, at this point, I don't want to drop him further than he is. So moving on, We have Cassius Winston, a 28, senior guard out of Michigan State. What Winston doesn't have an elite size and length, he sure makes up for in leadership and swagger, not to mention craft. He's had enough time to polish his game in college, and it's shown primarily in terms of operating out of pick-and-roll sets. He's comfortable using a screen to set up his other teammates. He's a pull-up threat inside or outside the arc, depending on where the pick is set. And he certainly isn't afraid to drive into the teeth of the defense on a give-and-go action. Winston's a fearless scorer in terms of his mentality, even if he's not always the most consistent shot maker. I don't credit that notion to lack of any particular skill, but despite everything I've said regarding Kraft and the willingness to use screens to set the table for others, he also has a tendency to get himself in position to attempt tough shots. Has he made plenty of high-pressure shots in college? Absolutely, from all over the floor, as a matter of fact. But at some point you need to find yourself taking more advantage of easier looks to get points, especially at the next level. NBA defenders are much longer and more athletic than what Winston saw on a regular basis in college, and the closeout penalties would be far more severe should he continue to hunt for contested looks. For every good pass or play he makes, there's a tough shot to come with it. And that, to me, is what holds him back in terms of being higher on my board. I love the locker room presence he can be for a team, the leadership, 
experience he brings coming from a winning culture, but balances everything in the NBA. I battled back and forth on whether to favor Malachi Flynn or Winston on a big board. The conclusion I came to, if you're drafting a point guard to be more of a big shot maker in this spot and are leaning on him to be more of a scoring threat as the focal point of a second unit, you would lean towards Winston because that's exactly what he was in college. He was the focal point for a Michigan State team despite being a 6'1 point guard. And while he's built to tackle defenses and has that bulldog mentality to match, at the end of the day, his game has limitations. And if that's the play style he's going to continue to execute, I think I'd rather have Flynn. Flynn is a more complete lead guard, and I think he plays better to what he knows his strengths are, which leads to him scoring and playmaking with more ease than Winston. Again, I'm not taking anything away from Cash's skill package. He developed more than I thought that he did, and I wasn't a huge fan of him coming into his senior year, but he ended up winning me over. I just can't see myself taking him higher than towards the latter part of the first round, although I do believe he's going to have some moments in the NBA on a good team that puts a more balanced attack around him. So at 29, this guy has fans in the lottery. He also has scouts putting him later in the first round, maybe not as far down as I do, but certainly a wide range and variety of outcomes here, at least from what I'm seeing. Um, 29, I have Kyra Lewis out of Alabama. Um, he has the physical tools and the measurables to excel. Being just 19 years old, he's 6'3 with what looks to me like a 6'7 wingspan. Um, and we'll see if we get better measurements here over the next few weeks to, to shore that up. But um, slight frame, he's likely not packing on much more weight or muscle, but it doesn't stop him from doing what he wants to do on the floor, and that's outrun everyone. He's the best end-to-end -end speed threat in the draft class, obviously makes him one of the top overall transition threats. And, and even in the NBA, I mean, there aren't many players that can beat him out in a foot race. Put simply, he's a blur. When he gets a lane or a great screen set for him in the half court, forget it, he's gone. And he's an underrated playmaker with the ball in his hands when he actually sees the play. Now, those sound like some major positives, and they are. You can't teach speed and athleticism. I say it all the time. But I think his overall basketball IQ leaves something to be desired in certain areas, particularly in the half court. I think a lot of it stems from Lewis only wanting to move at one speed, and that's fast. Is he faster than pretty much everyone he's going up against, even in the NBA? Sure. But the best floor generals know how to start, stop, and change speeds on a dime to confuse the defense. He doesn't have a pull-up jumper to go to. He barrels down towards the basket too often when he shouldn't, which leads to careless turnovers and poor shot selection. There are enough question marks about his outside jumper already, especially from three. So if he doesn't improve his shot to become more of a well-rounded threat, I mean, defenses can game plan around guys who, who only move at one speed. You, you've seen that plenty of times here in, in the bubble. When you show an NBA defense the same thing over and over and over again, coaches are too smart nowadays. They're going to figure out how to stop it, and they're going to shut that down. So you absolutely need to be a little more diverse, especially on the offensive end. And even outside the bubble, even outside the NBA playoffs, uh, another recent example I can think of is John Wall. At the start of his career, he only operated at one speed. Now, he had much better vision at, at that point than Lewis does, so he still racked up eight-plus assists a game, but there were so many decisions he missed because he wasn't letting the game come to him more. If you're a fan of Kyra, you're essentially betting on him making adjustments similar to Wall did and learn how to play at a different pace. For me, 
taking Lewis this high means you see the the John Morant similarities in terms of that slippery speed and explosiveness, and you're willing to bet the maturity and playmaking chops evolve enough for him to become a capable league guard. I just don't see Lewis becoming more of that well-rounded point. And if he's an interesting two guard with speed and scoring ability off the bench, that that's fine to be drafted at the back end of the first round. If you know that he, you're definitely going to get those things and he he's that much of a sure thing. I just don't see the same special with Lewis an intriguing prospect for sure, but this is kind of where I have him and, and I don't really see myself moving him up or down. I, I think he's right where he needs to be. And so with that, to finish out the top 30 here, I have Isaiah Joe, shooting specialist out of Arkansas. When I say shooting specialist, I mean it. He's not a shot creator. He's not someone who's going to shake defenders, going to the basket, doesn't look for cuts to the basket, likely as often as he should. But he does move well enough off the ball to hunt for his spots and take advantage of three-point looks. And the stroke is butter. I don't see any changes he has to make to his release mechanics or his body placement coming into the NBA. He has the range has the requisite size at 6'5 to play the off-guard spot. And while you'd like to see a better percentage than 34% on his three ball, he did shoot 89% from the free throw line. So again, mechanically, I don't see any major holes in how he gets shot up. Shot selection will be the key for him. Learning how to recognize defensive coverages, playing a closeout better and balancing when to attack or when to pass out. These are things that he showed signs of getting better at in his sophomore season, but still, plenty to work on getting him at this point of the draft likely means he's going to an established offensive system where he can come in and learn from veterans how to take better advantage of his strengths off the ball and fit in is he a game changer offensively no but he doesn't have to be if he's taken at this point of the draft i think i'm pretty much in the majority with other scouts in terms of where i have him on my board and i don't really see much else to, to talk about here as far as his game is concerned he kind of is who he is He's not a high usage option. He's best when he can get open looks and doses. All right. So that's going to wrap up today's podcast. Thank you all for listening. Again, if you aren't subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We have all of our shows up on YouTube. Uh, follow us on social media, like our Facebook page, Twitter handle at Draft Deeper. Um, please give us a follow. Trust me, there's plenty of insights, plenty of conversations going on on draft Twitter um, and giving reactions to everything going on in the NBA finals. Hopefully I can have some discussions with some of you on social media here. But again, I hope everyone has a great week. I hope everyone enjoys the NBA finals. We are going to be back at some point within the next week, week and a half here with a special guest, Jacob Birkenshaw from the Overstated NBA podcast, formerly um, the same podcast that, that we had Brett on from. Um, he's going to be joining us to go through some NBA Finals thoughts, and that's going to be an incredibly interesting podcast. He's a big numbers guy. I'm not a big numbers guy. So hopefully we're going to have some, some very tidy arguments on that front. So everyone, have a great rest of your week.